Well, tonight we delve into one of those chapters that pretty much nobody chooses to preach from this chapter, um, at least when they have options. In fact, talking about this chapter <laughs> has been delayed you know, for several weeks for various reasons, and, and maybe some of you started to think I was trying to duck out of it, but we are here in Genesis 34, Genesis 34. Um, and since it has been a while, let's just take a minute to remember where we are. It's been several weeks since we were in Genesis. But Jacob is still the main human character here. And finally, he's back in Canaan. Uh, he had left 20 years prior to get away from Esau. He went to Paddan Aram to Haran uh, there with uh, Laban. Before he got there, remember, he had that dream at a place that came to be known as Bethel. And the, the dream with the ladder and the angels. And it was there that God promised to be with him. It was there that God promised that he would come back to the land. And 20 years after that, God comes to Jacob. We saw in Genesis thirty-one thirteen, And told him, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar when you made this vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. And he does. Um, at least he's on. He's he's going that way. We he has that confrontation with Laban. We saw that. We saw the reconciliation with Esau. But but that what God told him. I am the God of Bethel. Return to the land of your birth. I believe all of that becomes important in what we're about to read, uh, and and the next chapter as Jacob heads back in that direction, and. Um, so we come here, and 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 what were thirty one verses? It's one of the ugliest chapters in all of the Bible. So here we go. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us, and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it, and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according as you say to me, but give me the girl in marriage. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit, because he had defiled Dinah their sister. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you, if you will become like us, in that every male of you be circumcised, 
Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will live with you and become one people. It, but if you will not listen to us and to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Now their words seemed reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. The young man did not delay to do the thing, because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was more respected than his son Shechem, or he was more respected than all the household of his father. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are friendly with us, therefore let them live in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to us to, to live with us to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will live with us. All who went out of the gate of, the, of his city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain, that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field and they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister as a harlot. So do you see what I mean about it being ugly? (laughs) Um, This is one of those chapters that people like to avoid. In fact, several commentaries on Genesis skip this chapter. Um, And among those that do interact with the text, there isn't a consensus on how to deal with it. Which is one of the reasons I have wrestled with how to deal with it in teaching it. Um, In fact, one commentary in a section on how to preach it says, We may well wonder if any man who had proper discernment ever drew a text from this chapter. So in other words, that commentary is saying, I don't know why anyone would ever preach from this. Uh, I don't know how anyone could ever decide to preach from this chapter, except here it is. Genesis 34 exists, and... And we have to deal with it if we believe Paul's exhortation to Timothy that all Scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God, and profitable. We have to deal with this. Um, To avoid the hard stuff, to avoid hard chapters like this, is not just depriving ourselves of the blessings of God's Word, but it's to adopt an attitude of sinfully dismissing something God has seen fit to reveal to us. So, here we are. And, and that's why I preach the way I preach. You know, books at a time, line by line, verse by verse, 
So that way I don't just preach my favorite passages and I don't just preach my my pet topics. I have to deal with the hard stuff and and you do too. Uh, And that's what God wants us to do. Um, It's to our benefit. It's to your benefit. It's to my benefit because we all need what Paul calls the whole counsel of God. So here we are in Genesis 34. So what's going on here and what does it have to do with us? Well, in verse 1 we read about Dinah. Jacob's daughter by Leah, going out to visit the daughters of the land. But what land? Well, in verse 2 we see it's Shechem. But let's think through that for a moment because back in Genesis 31, as I mentioned earlier, that's where God told Jacob to go back to the land of his birth. And the land of his birth, when we think about that, is probably Canaan. And it's true that Jacob was born in Canaan, but Canaan isn't a city. Canaan is a is like a region, a territory. Um, and so when God told him to, to go, we what we saw in Genesis 31, he's, he identified himself not as the God of Canaan, but as the God of Bethel. And Bethel, that place where the dream occurred. Now, we know that God is the God of everywhere. There's nowhere that God is not. There's nowhere that God is not present. He's omnipresent, all present. But he specifically called attention for Jacob's sake to Bethel, where he first appeared to Jacob. Remember, that was where he first appeared to him, um, a place that he'd also appeared to Abraham. So as I understand this, with Bethel being in the land of Canaan, God seems to have been calling Jacob to return not just to Canaan, the land of his physical birth, but even more specifically to Bethel, which was a kind of spiritual home for Jacob. Uh, The place that Jacob's vow to follow the Lord had been birthed. Again, that's in Genesis uh, 28. But, But as we get into chapter 34 here, Jacob has not gone back to Bethel. First, he stopped at a place on the eastern side of the the Jordan River, that came to be known as Sukkoth. Um, If you recall, uh, that's not in Canaan. It's on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Sukkoth means booths. And that that was the place where after he reconciled with Esau, he stopped in Sukkoth so that uh, he built booths. He stayed there for an indeterminate amount of time, but it was a significant amount of time. His livestock rested. His children rested. And it seems he stayed there for, for a little while. Eventually, though, he does make it across the river into an area. And we see this at the end of chapter 33. He settles in this area that came to be known as Shechem. And it's probably named after the Shechem we just read about in this, this chapter. Um, and it probably was given that name after it took place. The point, though, is that Jacob did not keep going deeper into Canaan. He, he was content to cross the river and pretty much stop there and buy land from Hamor, Shechem's father. And he did build an altar there. We see at the, at the end of chapter 33, verse 20, he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, the God, the God of Israel. So he established roots. He, 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 uh, he stopped there and established home, and it seemed at long last as the name Israel suggests, that Jacob had striven and now he had prevailed. He was back technically in Canaan. But in Genesis 34, he gets a quick reminder that he, this man through whom God's covenant promises are being kept and fulfilled and and passed down, 
he's reminded that he is surrounded by this pagan immorality. You know, he he is this this bastion of trusting in Yahweh amidst a world that does not trust in Yahweh. Pagan immorality surrounds him. And Dinah, his daughter, is probably about 13 to 15 years old. She's probably about the age Mary probably was when she conceived by the Holy Spirit. She's in her young teenage years. Now, we don't think about that being marriage age in our culture, but in, in those days in the ancient culture, she was not considered a girl anymore. She is getting to the age now where she's considered a young woman. So, verse 1 she goes out to visit or to see the daughters of the land. So for the, for the first time since living where Laban was, she has a home, a, 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 at least a, a semi-permanent home. And Jacob, her father, is putting down roots here in Shechem. So she goes out to visit and get to know and and spend time with the daughters of the land. Other girls her age. So Perfectly understandable thing for someone her age to do. Perfectly understandable thing for anyone to do, to get to, to know other people their age. The thing is, there were also young men out there. Uh, boys who were physically maturing and no longer considered boys, but young men. And in verse 2, Shechem, son of Hamor, who had sold Jacob land, saw Dinah, took her, and lay with her. New American Standard reads, by force. Now, the original Hebrew is such that the translators of different translations over the course of many centuries now have adopted a wide range of words to interpret what happened here. Some translations like the NIV, the New Living, the Holman Christian Standard Bible say raped, that Dinah was raped. Another says that he sexually assaulted her. Then, on the other hand, there are other translations that take a tamer view. Uh, The KJV says defiled. The ESV, the English Standard Version, says humiliated. And uh, so, as a result, and as I've shared with some of you, I wrestled very much with what is going on here. And and because that's to say she's defiled and, and humiliated is not the same thing as saying she was raped. So, what was going on here? In the end, I don't think it does justice to the passage and to the message of this chapter to get too bogged down on that issue. And I'll explain more of that as, as we continue on here. But I have come down on the, the original, uh, well, not the original, the traditional interpretation that it was more like rape than not. Okay? Um, now, to say that, what we also see is that he really, 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 really liked her. In fact... We're told in verse 3, he loved her and spoke tenderly to her, which makes what he did very strange. Um, I will say this. As grievous a sin as we know rape to be, and, 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 and as any kind of sexual assault to be, Without diminishing the gravity of Shechem's offense in that culture, it was not as taboo as it is today. And it is rightly taboo today. In fact, we see, we're going to see here in a couple of verses that it was supposed to be taboo then, but the fact of the matter is, in that culture, it was not viewed as grievously as it is today. In fact, we see in verse 7 that 
they were angry, the, the, the brothers were, because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing ought not to be done. That for such a thing not ought, ought not to be done is probably Moses writing later, adding, and he's the one that compiled all of this, he's adding an editorial insertion here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to let us know that this was immoral and it was absolutely unacceptable. And... Uh, in fact, it was it was so bad that the sense is that he wanted her so much she wasn't allowed to leave his house after it happened, which we get from something that happens at the end of the chapter. Um, and, and, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I don't want us to miss the forest for the tree, so it doesn't behoove us to, to try to examine all the details of what happened here because the Scriptures themselves don't give us all the details of what happened here. Um, so we need to focus on what is here. And, and so in verse 4, we see that Shechem says to his father Hamor, Get me this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob hears about what happened. His, his sons were not there when he found out. He keeps silent until they come in. And, and in the meantime, Hamor shows up. And then Jacob's sons come in. And so verse 7, the men were grieved and they were very angry. And from our perspective, we would say, I would hope so. I mean, I, I, I would hope so. I mean, um, absolute understandable anger, absolutely justified in their anger. Uh, Hamor, for his part, we get no inclination whatsoever that he comes with an apology. We get no inclination whatsoever that there's any sympathy here. And Jacob seems not to have known how to respond. Because on the one hand, you have this thing that's happened to his daughter. On the other hand... You just bought land from this man, and he is the big wig in town. He's the big deal. There's no one more respected than he and his son. And so, I mean, the town came to be known as Shechem. So, at least part of Jacob's son's anger seems to have been not just that their sister was defiled, but for defiling Israel. We see that in verse 7 where because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Because by now, they have been told by Jacob, they've been taught by their father that God has promised me things and promised things to my descendants. And now the family has been defiled. You add to that in verse 8, Hamor explicitly asked for Dinah to be given to Shechem as a wife. Intermarry with us, he says. Give your daughters to us. Live with us. The land is open to you. Trade with us. Acquire property. Hamor, in the earthly sense, is making a very attractive proposal to Jacob and his sons. Um, all they have to do is intermarry. Give me the girl in marriage. She's willing to do pretty much anything. And how does Jacob respond to this? Well, oddly, he doesn't. Um, and you can read a lot into that. Um, scripture doesn't give us specifically the reason why he didn't, but we are left to infer some things that perhaps he was so upset over the matter he left the rooms. Perhaps he just can't bring himself to talk about it. Perhaps he's just fearful of what will happen if he comes up against Hamor. In fact, we, we can see that he was fearful later on in this chapter of what will happen to him and his small band of, of people. But he, he doesn't speak up here, and that gives his sons an opportunity to do so, and they are quick to do so. He d 
defiled their sister, and now they were dealing with what Shechem had done in this this kind of matter-of-fact, business-like, cavalier way. We cannot do this thing. We cannot give Dinah to you. But the lie was in why they couldn't. We cannot give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Now, it's in this assertion, even though it's a lie, why I suspect the issue of defiling not just Dinah, but as they saw it, the line of Jacob was a big issue here. So they gave Hamor and Shechem this condition. (coughs) Every male among you gets circumcised. Then you can have Dinah and our daughters as wives and we'll become one people. They, They had to go along with it, the sons said, or else they would take their daughter or their sister and, and, and go. And, of course, Hamor and Shechem, as we have read, they agree to this. They were very eager to agree to this, um, easily convinced. Uh, Hamor and Shechem go to the other men of the city. They're easily convinced. And, well, let's just say that uh, circumcising an adult male 4,000 years ago wasn't quite like circumcising a newborn boy today. Um, I remember... About 13 years ago, uh, that happening in, in, in not my life, but, but one who was among us. He doesn't remember it at all. These men remembered it when it happened. Um, whatever the medical and surgical specific, specifics were for this procedure. Anesthesia did not exist. Anesthesia did not exist, at least not to the point that uh, it really mattered. And on the third day, they were still in pain. Now... I don't know, I, I have a couple of commentaries that indicate that the third day is where the most pain would have been. I've got no medical information to back that up, except to say that's what those commentaries say, and I'll just leave that at that. But in any event, verse 25, it came about that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male, including Hamor, including Shechem. And they... That's where we see that they took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. So this was an absolute slaughter. I mean, this was the likes of which had not been seen in Scripture up to this point and really wouldn't be seen again until the conquest and until God orders Israel to do some very uh, hard things to, 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 to think through. But God had not told them to do this. Um, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, in Romans chapter 13. Actually, Paul's quoting the Old Testament when he writes that. This was not for a holy purpose. Um, they, they had a right to be angry because of what had happened to Dinah, but that does not give us a right to seek revenge. And, and we need to be reminded of that. It's, it's okay to be angry, the Bible even says in, in, in Ephesians, be angry and do not sin. When we let our anger turn to thoughts of revenge and act, or actually carrying out revenge, we are in sin. And they were in sin. They did not have the right to revenge. And they certainly didn't have the right to kill every male in the city. This was a systematic going from house to house and putting every male in the city to death. Well, if they were all incapacitated, then yeah, but well, the women weren't. I mean, well, it says they also took them captive. Yeah, but I mean, 
if there were only two men and there's a, a whole town full of women with nice big pots or something, I mean, you would figure. <laughs> she said nice big pots. Well, you know, I, I, well we don't, I can't believe we, we know that the city was big enough to have a gate where people met. But it might not have been a very big place. It, the, the, much is made, well, not much, but enough is made of there being more than enough land for Jacob and his sons to settle there that uh, there was plenty of land for them all. Um, what we do know is, is what they did. And they put all the men to death, all the males to death. You know, we don't really even see anything quite that specific until King Herod. Um. They looted the city. They they took the flocks, the herds, donkeys, all the wealth, women and children. Because where were they going to go? What were they going to do? Yeah. So they took them. And, and the two at the heart of this are Simeon and Levi. Um, they are not teenagers at this point. Most likely, they are. They are still what we would call young men in the grand scheme of things. But it's two versus a city. And they won, and they may have thought that because they carried this out and were successful, that they had God's blessing in doing so, that uh, their righteous indignation led to this holy victory. Uh, but they were wrong. And part of that has to fall on Jacob. I don't think that, I really think when we get down to it, part of the reason for this chapter is to continue to show us Jacob's uh, proclivity for failure. Um, I mean, all his sons disappear. Yeah. And, and, oh. I guess it would be the same Levi that became the priest. And yeah. And the was the priest. Yeah, we're, we're actually going to talk about that in a minute. But same Levi for who, whose tribe will become the priest of Israel. Um, it, it, it's really staggering. Um, but Jacob... He's the father, he's the head of the household, he's the patriarch. And ultimately it's his responsibility not just to set the course for his sons, but to protect his daughter and and act somehow on her behalf, be her first line of defense, be her advocate. But for whatever reason, he is practically silent up until the end of this chapter and, and when he saw the anger of his sons, he should have done what a, a father is supposed to do and guide his sons to respond to ungodliness in an ungodly way. I mean, that's something every father should do because ungodliness happens to our children. And we are to teach them to respond in a godly way when things don't go right, when they see injustice, when they are attacked for whatever reason. Um, but he didn't do that. And when he, when, when he learned what they had done... You know, it, you know, perhaps you know Levi and Simeon are coming back with their spoils. Only then does he speak up, and we see that in verse thirty. What does he say? You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. So Jacob, by his passivity here, had allowed Simeon and Levi to take matters into their own hands, and now he's ashamed of how they have chosen to deal with it. You know, whatever hopes he had for building a home, establishing a home in Shechem, are gone. And instead of his family now being known for their devotion to Yahweh, they're going to be known for this, for, for the slaughter of Shechem. And, and, and they would be known for deception. 
which Jacob had been known for for much of his life leading up to this. And, and for the worst kind of cruelty, jo- Jacob said they had made him odious in the land. So literally his name would stink. His, his name would become a stench. He, he feared for his family because, what does he say here? People will, will think of them and they'll think of this slaughter and they will try to protect themselves and people will gather together and come against his family if they think his family is looking to carry out this type of stuff wherever they go. So they're going to be destroyed. What's wrong with that picture? What's wrong with Jacob thinking that? This is a lack of faith in Jacob's part. Why is it a lack of faith in Jacob's part? Because his family, if he would just think about God's promises to him, he knows his family will not be destroyed. Which, which he, he would have known had he in that moment been living by faith and living by confidence in God's promises to him. So once again, we see the highs and the lows of Jacob's life. And this is another low in Jacob's life because he, this is another example of him living faithlessly. Um, not not leading his family by faith, which is something we've seen before. You know, when when he left Laban in Paddan Aram, Rachel, his favorite wife, steals the idols and hides them, and, and there's deception involved there. Why is she stealing these false gods to begin with if he's leading his family by faith? He, he wasn't doing it. And then, of course, before that, the fact that he had four wives to begin with, you know, he got deceived in, on the first deal. But, but the interaction between the wives and his failure to, to, to be the head of his household and lead his wives in a godly way, um, it, it all catches up to him. And to that end, you know, he, he's following the bad example of Isaac, who was a faithful man, but he, he struggled with how to, to, to parent Jacob and Esau. Uh, on more than one occasion. So the the whole affair leaves Simeon and Levi indignant. And you can understand why. I mean, should he treat our sister like a harlot? Because they had treated Dinah exactly like a harlot. He took her. You know, he loved her, quote-unquote. I mean, he he raped her, then he tried to buy her. And Jacob, it seemed like he didn't care, or at least he didn't care enough. He could say nothing in reply to his sons. He, he was guilty as charged. This man who, who trusted in God, who made this vow at Bethel to follow the Lord, had gone back <coughs> to his old ways of deception and compromise and passivity and, and not trusting God. And the next time we're in Genesis... We won't be meeting together like this next week, but the next time we're in Genesis, probably in two weeks, we're going to see the impact of this realization on him. Uh, For now, though, you know, as I mentioned at the start, some commentators question why this is even in the Bible. Well, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 that these things are given to us when he's talking about the Old Testament. Paul in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 10 says these things are given to us as examples. So they are given to us to learn from the the examples, the good examples and the bad in Scripture. We're to learn from them as Christians and and, and live in a godly way. But I want to leave you tonight with three more reasons, and they're, they're quick, three more reasons why this is in the Bible. And the first 
is that one of the points of Genesis 34 actually seems to be revealed in Genesis 35. And we'll see, in fact, that Jacob there in Genesis 35 will go all the way to Bethel. Genesis 34, at least in part, seems to be here to explain to us how he eventually got there. Okay, And we'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. Another reason why I believe this is here is one of the, the, the things that needs to be explained in Scripture is what Jacob says in Genesis 49. Jacob in Genesis 49 is in Egypt and he's on his deathbed and there's this scene where he gathers all of his sons together to bless them and in fact prophesy over them. And when he talks about Simeon and Levi in that, that blessing, that prophecy, verses 5 and 6, Genesis 49 says this, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Well, first of all, of course they're brothers. They've got all these other brothers too, though. So why are they in particular brothers? Well, they're not just brothers by blood, but they're brothers in heart too and how they, they, they have carried out these things. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let my not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now the reason I bring that up is because if you go into the back of your Bible, and there's a map for the 12 tribes of Israel, you're going to see a couple of different things. First of all, you're going to see Simeon, the tribe of Simeon, is completely surrounded by the tribe of Judah. So when we talk about I will disperse them in Jacob, he's dispersing them completely within another tribe. Okay. The other one, Levi, does anybody remember where the tribe of Levi was situated? in Israel once the tribes were dispersed. You can't remember because they weren't given any land. They weren't given any territory of their own, but the Levites were in fact made the priest, and they were scattered in Israel. So Simeon was dispersed in Jacob. Simeon or Levi was scattered in Israel. And Genesis 34 explains why that is in Genesis 49. Okay, That's another reason why I believe this is here. Finally, though, the third reason, and this one's more practical, I guess. Um, why did God put this here? Maybe it is just to show that the Word of God is true. Now, why do I make that the final point? Because have you ever read a biography of somebody that really seemed to go easy on the bad points of their life? I have. I've, I, especially if it's an autobiography, they tend to whitewash the ugly parts of their own history, right? Why did God put this here? Maybe it's just to show us that the Word of God is true. Because who is going to want to say this about themselves? 
if it didn't really happen. Um, I'm going to close with some words from the late pastor of of a Philadelphia church. I think it's 10th Presbyterian Church, James Montgomery Boyce. This is what he wrote. Whenever the Bible contains material that reflects so badly, not merely upon the sins of humanity in general, but also upon the particular wickedness in the hearts and lives of God's people, this is evidence of the divine and not merely the human origin of the Scriptures. And I think that's exactly right. The fact that we see sometimes in the Bible these huge protruding warts on God's people and that the Bible doesn't attempt to cover them up. You know, we can think of David as another example. A man after God's own heart who committed adultery and murder. Okay? The fact that God's Word doesn't attempt to whitewash the sins of God's people shows us more of its truthfulness. He cleanses us of our sins by the blood of His Son anyway. He doesn't need to whitewash history. He cleanses us by the blood of His Son. So instead of whitewashing things, He shows us sins in technicolor. He shows us sins so vividly in Scripture, um, even among God's people, that it just magnifies His grace. And I guess that's what I want to leave us with tonight. It shows us His Word is true, and it magnifies His grace. Also in the chapter, there's no word that they talk to God. Yeah, they aren't. This is, that's a really good point. They're not seeking after God. God's people are not seeking after God here. And yet, as we will continue to see, He remains there, and He remains faithful to them. And that should be an encouragement in our own lives, not that we should dare to follow in the example of Simeon and Levi, but that God is faithful to us. And, you know, I was talking uh, Sunday night, I was at a different church preaching on my way to Greensboro for the Baptist Convention, um, Ephesus Baptist, and got to talking to a couple people on my way out about how God's grace... Is it can save the worst sinner, and it's a reminder to us that nothing we do can carry us so far out of God's reach. His grace is that amazing, um, and, and and so it shows us that even Genesis thirty four is breathed out by God, and that even an ugly chapter like this can be profitable for us. One point that was brought up. Living Bible commentary is that 